Welcome to Kelly McAtee Curated Content for the Busy from the context of the seven mind-molding mountains of cultural influence where we are seeking to be busy with the right things that fill our cup to overflowing because that not only nourishes ourselves, but it overflows onto our households, communities, cities, states, and nation. For when the people thrive in the land, the whole land prospers. So today I want to share with you all the most incredible Thanksgiving trip that we went on as a family. I call it the Great American um road trip up through the heartland of the United States. So um, on my mother's side, we are descendants of the Cherokee Nation. It's all very documented. We have our um, citizenship with the Cherokee Nation and our cards. It's been a very active part of my upbringing. Um, My grandfather, my mother's father, always told cowboy and Indian stories. It was his mother that was uh, the Cherokee Indian. There was actually, you know, some Blackfoot in there and some other tribes. There was a lot of um, cross-tribal breeding and that sort of thing that went on. But the Cherokees were the most, what we would call today, civilized. There were five civilized tribes. And how they got that name is just that. They had towns, they had cities, they had commerce, they had government, they had structure, they had culture, they had art. Um, They were actually very advanced for their time. They really valued women and they educated their women and their men. Um, They, the women had leadership positions. They really, they were an egalitarian society, which means they valued everybody that was in the tribe. They recognized the need for everybody's gifts and abilities, not only for survival, but also for thriving. And so we went as a family to Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and Muskegee, Oklahoma, where we've got some family history there. And it was so special. The Cherokee Nation is really remarkable. The monuments, the museums, they are so well done. They are so beautiful. They really tell a thorough story. They don't hide the bad. That, you know, good museums will, in a beautiful but respectful way, show and demonstrate the things that we as modern society need to learn from. And so, um, one of the things that is particularly interesting to me is the study of the Trail of Tears because my ancestors came across on the Trail of Tears. Um, one of my direct ancestors was William Blythe, and he started and ran a ferry that crossed. I believe it was the Mississippi. Now that I'm starting to say that, I'm second guessing. I need to go look it up. Learning all this stuff is still fairly new to me, so I'm still getting it down. But he had a ferry that was a critical ferry crossing for the Trail of Tears. But before that, it was a business. He was an entrepreneur. And he knew a need. He saw a need. He met a need in the market. And that particular ferry actually ran until 1994 when I was in high school until a bridge was built at that time. So um, that's finding those little treasures. You've got those in your family. I encourage you to go after them because they're so incredible. 
But one of the things that really struck me, and I want to speak into a current cultural issue that is definitely reaching a fever pitch, and it's around race. And I want to talk about why there is a, I don't know if it's global, because I, I live here, so I can really only speak to what I'm kind of observing here in the United States. It's a little bit of a revolt against the white male. Well, why is that? Because really, the truth of the matter is, is they've got a lot of gifts and abilities to bring to the table, just like anybody does, of any race or ethnicity or culture or gender. Every single human on the planet has gifts and abilities that are valuable to society. So why is it that there is this revolt against the white male right now? Well, as I was walking through some of these Cherokee museums, there were a few things that struck me and I thought, huh, I wonder if this is part of what people are revolting against. The Cherokee Indians were a settled people. They were across North Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia. They had cities. They had government. The white man came in. The colonists came in, and they brought good to the table. And the Cherokees recognized that. They had partnerships with the early white men. And in fact, there was a lot of Indian assimilating into, a lot of Cherokees were assimilating into the white culture, and there was even a lot of intermarrying going on already before 1776. And so the other part of our Great American Road Trip was I recently discovered that I'm a descendant of Edward Fuller who came over on the Mayflower. So I didn't even realize that I had that flowing through my veins and I got to go visit on the second half of my Thanksgiving trip a distant relative that I did not know that I had until this summer who is also a descendant of that same Fuller family. She's kind of a distant aunt and I got to see some of the most incredible treasures so it was pretty powerful for me to think and meditate on the idea that in my veins is the marriage of the Caucasian, white, European, colonist man, and the native Cherokee Indian people. Those early people valued each other. It was the Indians who, no joke, helped those Mayflower people survive. Because they're going, oh no. You white people ain't going to make it over here in this winter. It is cold. And you guys don't know how to grow food. And there's no grocery store that you can go to to get food. So it is a beautiful picture of what happens when two cultures see each other, recognize that they can learn from one one another, and then they do that. So back to the Cherokee Indians. When after 1776, and there was a government forming and starting to take shape in this land, I really chuckle when people say the nation started at 1776. No, it did not. No, it didn't. There were lots of people already here 
and doing all kinds of things. Now, valuable things began in 1776 that we are still benefiting from. But the nation did not start then. The land and her people were already here. There were some new folks that came and decided, you know what? I think we can organize a little bit better. And they were right. So the Cherokee Indians saw that there was good in the formation of a government based on a constitution. In fact, they had their own constitution. They had representatives that went to Washington. They were already working on assimilating within the structure that was being built by the white men. And they were working together. It's really incredible. Now, the problem was that even though the Indians were willing to learn, not all of them, obviously, that is not, I want to make that quick clarification. There's always the principle of the wheat and the tares grow together. If you don't know that parable, go check it out. It is essentially in every single group, there's the good and the bad. There are those that actually have genuine hearts, and there are those that don't, that are just out for themselves. We see that on the Mayflower. There were two groups on the Mayflower. There were the Puritans that were seeking um, a solemn, safe place to worship the Lord their God in a way that they felt was pure and right and good. And then you had those that were just looking for opportunity. They were there for business reasons, and the two groups didn't really get to... They didn't get along very well. Okay, so what? Lots of groups, personality-wise, they don't get along. But they still made it work. They still came up with the Mayflower Compact. They still found where they agreed and made it work. So that is absolutely possible. And I say this all the time. My day job is, is real estate. I can negotiate any deal with any parties as long as someone is not holding under the table a secret agenda. Now, that comes to light with the triggering of the Trail of Tears. So if the Cherokees and some of the other civilized tribes were working with the U.S. government, were developing relationships, were willing to submit to the U.S. Constitution and assimilate, then how in the world did the Trail of Tears happen? The Trail of Tears is one of the worst scars on American history. It is one of the most egregious, um, thievery, of land and lives. And so why would the U.S. government trigger that sort of abysmal and even really annihilation of people? Why would they do that? When they were developing relationships, they were totally working things out. Well, It's not because the Indians were not willing to, quote, become white. And it wasn't because they weren't interested in learning from the ways of the colonists or the white man. Because they were, and that was actually happening. The problem was that the white man wasn't willing to learn from them. The other problem 
is that the single thing that triggered the trail of tears wasn't that they weren't getting along. It wasn't that they weren't negotiating things and coming to agreements. It was because Andrew Jackson and his buddies discovered gold on Cherokee land, especially in North Georgia. So it was the fact that there were rich resources, subsurface resources in the Cherokee land. And it's like, well, these people just have to go. So things are going fine until that discovery is made. Now all of a sudden, oh no, we got to rip these people out of this land, this fertile, rich land. They don't care about the gold. We care about the gold. The truth is, they did care about the gold, but they cared about caring for the land because they lived off the land. It didn't, it didn't make sense to them to rape the land because that meant that they were hurting themselves. They understood that. The white man's going, nope, you got to go. We found gold. We want it. So you are going to be moved from this rich, fertile farmland to the Dust Bowl. You'll be fine. You'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. And we're going to take this land and, oh, by the way, we're going to sell it. So we're going to profit from your land in unbelievable ways. And you're not only not going to see a dime, but you and your family are likely going to die um, from the journey. So good luck. Now, that is obviously a pretty crude um characterization of it but if you start digging in and studying it you go oh my gosh all this really boiled down to was gold and they wanted it and I see that pattern repeated over and over and over again throughout the United States and I see it a lot in cultures of white men there is a an overall attitude of anybody who believes differently than I do is an idiot or they just don't understand or they're misinformed or they don't get it or whatever. And the truth of the matter is, is I get it. I mean, these, these really are human issues. They're not necessarily race issues. We, we need to put a label on stuff. Human behavior needs to put a label on stuff. But really, the bottom line is that most of the time, these get down into the bedrock of just simply being human issues. And so every single human has to face at some point in their lives, oh gosh, maybe I'm not right on absolutely everything. Maybe there are some other perspectives that are valid and do have value. It might not be the way that I necessarily want to live, but that's okay. And I can see that they care about different things than I do, and that's okay too. So I believe that a lot of what the world, and especially those in the United States, are revolting against when it comes to especially the, quote, privileged white man, is this kind of underlying attitude and mentality of, I want that, that's mine, I'm going to take it, and I don't really care how it affects you. So part of what happens is 
there is no denying that historically since 1776, it was the white male who owned land, which means it's an asset, which means it sets them up for more and more wealth and opportunities. And they came in and created this system of owning land. Obviously, the Indians didn't own the land. They occupied it. And they had wars and they fought for territory and that sort of thing. But they also, in a lot of ways, protected the land. They didn't ever feel like they owned it. They felt like God owned it. Well, they kind of got a point. The earth and everything in it is his. Well, then white man comes along and says, no, 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 no. We're going to create a system of ownership so that you can own the land. And oh, by the way, you can own not only the surface rights, but you can own the subsurface rights. And now I can own the subsurface rights, but not own the surface rights. Like, ah, the real wealth is in the subsurface rights. Aha. So, There is a very clear thread of greed that goes on. Now, is greed in every single culture and every single race? And does every single human have to battle deep-rooted selfishness, self-righteousness, greed? Yes. Yes, of course. Every single human on the planet is going to have to face that sort of thing inside themselves at some point or another. Does greed happen in other veins besides just money? Yes, we can be greedy for stuff. Like, I don't care if I've got the money, I just want the stuff. Or can we be greedy for the adoration of others? Yes, of course. Um, So greed does not only have to be about dollars and cents. But in a lot of ways, what the white male constructs are these systems of clubs, secret societies. They have a tendency to create these structures that allow certain people to succeed and others to not. And I think in a lot of ways, they may or may not even intend to do that. Now, there's some nasty people who do intend to do that. And they're going to have to face their reckoning at some point. However, I really do not believe that every single one of them is rooted in this wicked, evil, conniving type of scheme. I grew up in a very white, affluent place. I grew up with people like that, and they are good people. There are so many of them, their hearts are in the right place. They do care. They do mean well. There just can be sometimes a lot of misinformation. Lots of times people can mean well and not understand They can't see clearly the consequences of how their actions trickle down and out. It's like a reverberation that goes on. And you can't see that unless you get outside of those little circles. Well, most people don't do that. People, we all, we have a tendency. The human tends to stay within the circles that they're comfortable in. There's a reason that, that, 
certain societies are homogenous. You know, there's a reason that cultures will be drawn to one another because it's comfortable and it's safe and we get each other and we speak the same language and we live similarly. So the thing that struck me so strongly in the course of looking at both sides of kind of the Indian culture and their roots here in this land. And then the new folks coming over, the white. And it's like, I, I really chuckle at the whole, you know, white thing. It's like, well, okay, but, you know, technically my skin really isn't white. And um, my descendants, like I'm a descendant really of, you know, German um, there's some Russian in there. There's, so it's really kind of that European type, I guess you can call it colonialism, that we're hearing that word a lot. People really revolt to this whole idea of colonialism. And it's like, well, why? Like, well, sometimes it feels like big fat bullies coming in and saying, you're doing it wrong. You need to do it this way. And oh, you're not doing it right. So we're going to take it away from you. And we're going to do it our way. And we don't care to, you know, what's about how you need or want it done. That's how it feels. And so if the person doing that doesn't mean for it to feel that way, there has to be somebody who pauses and says, wait, Wait, let's slow down. Let's actually engage with the humans who are currently here in this place. Let's actually get to know one another and let's learn from each other. And that has to be an attitude. There has to be a heart that is willing to sit down and engage and learn and grow. And so if there is continually an attitude within some of these circles of an unwillingness to truly listen, especially to those you don't agree with, especially to those who infuriate you. That should be your first trigger of, okay, wait a second. Why does this person infuriate me? What are they tapping into that is activating a very strong emotional response in me? Is there something truly there for me to deal with, for me to take a look at? Because the only person we can ever actually start change with is ourselves. That's it. And by changing myself, I actually start to change those around me. It's slow and it can be small. It can be little steps here and there. In fact, that's what actually is lasting is little by little, precept upon precept. So I feel like the discussions on race have to continue in a certain way. There's a certain proper and appropriate way to open up the discussions without causing more division, without causing more labels. I, quite frankly, I'm kind of labeled out. I really can't keep up with all of them. It's just, it's just too hard. We got to keep it simple. We've got to tell our stories. And so we've got to humbly engage with one another and ask 
questions. Instead of just vomiting on each other, let's ask questions. Hey, what's your experience? What's your family heritage? Do you know about it? I'd love to know about it. You learn those things about others within the context of a relationship. And how do you build relationships? You go to lunch or you have them over for dinner or, you know, you go on a walk or you go watch each other's children play lacrosse or basketball or soccer and as parents you sit on the sidelines together and you talk a little bit while you're watching the game you get to know each other and so that is actually what was happening on this land in the early days between certain groups of Cherokee Indians other tribes as well but that's the one I know about because that's my connection and certain other colonists, other white people. There were meaningful, good conversations going on at that time. And then there was this big old bully that comes in with all the power and says, nope, you got to go. We want your gold. But they didn't say that. They said, we need to just remove you. It was the Indian Removal Act. Because you're savages. They had to reduce those people to savages. And they put forth falsehoods and lies. They made people afraid of them. And they, so that the public would demand that they be removed from where the white people are trying to live. When in fact, they were very civilized. They were already in talks. They were already leaders in the community. So the government had to paint them out to be savages so that then they could pass a bill called the Indian Removal Act and they could sleep at night removing them. They made it about something it wasn't about. And that's how they were able to get it done. Do y'all ever notice that something like that happens? It doesn't happen today, does it? No, surely not. These are the practices that have to stop. Let's just start getting honest and let's just say we want your gold. And then let's deal with that. Because I can make any deal work as long as everybody sitting at the table is honest. Deals don't work when people aren't honest. Fraud happens in massive levels to massive scales. Think 2008. Think Lehman Brothers. Think all those nice, big, institutional situations that were absolutely and completely engaging in global fraud. It was sanctioned, government-paid-off fraud that has never actually been accounted for. There has never actually been any justice served. That is what people are revolting against. That is what people are sick and tired of. That is what the people are saying stop to. So let's continue to speak the truth in love. Because the truth of the matter is, is there is redemption. There is light. There is hope. There is always a way out. 
You just have to choose it. You just have to be willing to humble your heart and say, huh, maybe there is something here that I need to take a look at. Maybe there is something here that I need to deal with. There is always forgiveness. Now, I'm always coming from the perspective of, I believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Savior of the whole world. I believe that he is who he says he is. I believe that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world, the great I am coming, descending down into earth in the form of a human, a little baby, was willing to submit himself to that for the greatest love story of all time. He says, I'm coming. I'm coming for you. I will not leave you or forsake you. I will not leave you to the darkness of the abyss of the blackness of sin and death and corruption and fraud and poverty. I will not leave you there. In fact, I will come myself. I will come in the same form that you are in. I will choose it because I choose you. I choose you. I want you. I love you. He is the only one who has the message of come, come, eat and drink freely. He is the only one who includes absolutely everybody. There's no secret. There's no secret society. There's no club that you can't get into. He invites everyone. Everyone is invited. He is the only one that comes and knocks on our door. He came as one of us with lips just like you and I, speaking the truth. And quite frankly, he pissed a lot of people off because he screwed up their system. He said, no, you're doing it wrong. And you don't even care that you're doing it wrong. You don't even care that you have set up a system that keeps you elite, that keeps you high and mighty, that keeps you wealthy and in charge and and in control. You don't even care how that hurts and oppresses the people. That's why I came. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Well, They were some of the sickest people on the planet and they didn't even know it. They couldn't even see it. And he tried. He tried to tell them. And quite frankly, some of them listened. Some of them went, oh gosh, I think what he's saying is right. I think what he's saying is true. Because it was. Because the greatest scholars, the greatest minds of the time, When Jesus walked this planet, they were so convinced of their own rightness. They were so entrenched in needing their own power to remain. And they were so jealous that the people loved him that they couldn't see that he was their Messiah, the one they've been waiting on, the one they've been crying out for. The one that they say with their lips that they want, yet their hearts were far from them. They were far from him. And so that is what each one of us has to do. Do my lips match my heart? 
If I say that I'm a Christian, does my heart really believe the things that my head says and that my lips says? Do I really walk out the truth of what I say my Bible is? Do I truly and completely love others in the way that Jesus loved others? Or do I find myself being overly critical of those who, quote, dine with prostitutes? I can't say that I know a whole lot of prostitutes. Um, maybe I do, and I don't know that they're prostitutes. However, what I have experienced is one of my great loves, Rod Ministries, which is a prison ministry that goes into prisons. And why do I love that ministry so much? Because those who have been on the inside, lots of them over and over and over again, they have a raw realness to them. They are genuine. They're not putting on facades. They're not pretending to be one way and another. They can't. They can't afford to anymore. Life has beaten them down and they are honest. They are open about their struggles and they are free to tell their story of redemption and how Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the living God, how he chased after them and how he rescued them. They are open and honest about how sick they were and how transformed they are now. That is exciting. That is authentic. That is real. They are some of the most tremendous humans I know on the planet. Because you can watch them from the day that they get out. And you go see them on the inside. And you see them on the inside and they look like little boys. Because so many of them in their heart of hearts are little boys who didn't get what they needed. Because we live in a fallen world. And then you see them, you know, their first week out. And they've got, you know, some hand-me-down t-shirt and their posture's kind of hung a little bit. And um, they're just glad to be within a loving group that will take care of them. They're just happy to have a home because that's what Rod creates for them is a home when they get out. And then they go through their training, their aftercare training, which starts to teach them life skills like budgeting. And there's a curfew. Like, let's have some boundaries. Let's let's create some structure so that you can truly learn and start to thrive. And then you can watch these men each week. They start to stand up a little bit taller. Their clothes start to fit a little bit better. They start working. They start earning a paycheck. They start having value for themselves and others. And then they get to a place where you can't recognize who's who. You can't recognize who was a former inmate and who is the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You can't tell the difference. And in a lot of ways, one of them is more genuine, more rooted, more authentic, and more honest and more humble than the other. And it will often surprise you. So, thank you so much for joining me today.
please consider sharing it and come back anytime. And I just want to bless you and your daily life and your family with eyes to see and ears to hear. And may a great thriving begin to bud and take place inside the core of who you are and in your whole world.